Today on the Vergecast, Eddie Robertson joins the show to talk about week two of Epic versus Apple. What is going on in Apple's ads business? Really weird stuff. Then Monica Chin joins the show. We talk about my Starlink review and go over all of the new laptops that came out this week. It's a wild Vergecast coming up now. Support for the show comes from Kohler. Smart lights, smart refrigerators, smart locks. The list of smart gadgets meant to make life more convenient grows longer and longer every day. But what about smart things that are also beautiful things? Luxurious, even. Meet the Numi 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet yet. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Make your bathroom the smartest, cleanest, and most comfortable room in your home with Kohler. Learn more at Kohler.com. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, and welcome to Virgast, the flagship podcast of infrastructure. That's right, it's Infrastructure Week at The Verge. We have a lot of coverage of all of the different ways we're connected, all the services we need, which means, yes, it's true. On this episode of the show, we're going to talk about Starlink. It's going to happen. I'm your friend, Eli. Dieter Brown is here. I'm your bridge to the 21st century. There it is. Addie Robertson's here. Hi. I watch Trials. <laughs> Addie's been watching the Apple Epic trial. A little later, Monica Chin is going to join us to talk about all the new laptops that came out this week. She also, she and I had a number of Starlink experiences, I would say. I want to start at the start with COVID. We are, we're in just a weird place with COVID, still the biggest story in the world. The CDC today, actually right before we came on air, said if you were vaccinated, you have to wear a mask in many, many situations now, mm. which is cool. Uh, so get vaxxed if you can. We have a bunch of coverage on sort of this moment in the pandemic, including getting hospitals ready for the next pandemic. Like we've learned a lot. How should hospitals be prepared and how to count the impact of the pandemic? People got sick. People died. Lots of people died. There's a math fight, as you would expect. There's a data integrity fight about that stuff happening. So we have coverage of that on the site. But as I said last week, if you're not vaccinated, please just go get the shot. That's like the fastest way to make this over. And it feels feels like we are going to enter a summer where it's more normal than not. What we are not going to enter is the end stage of Apple versus Epic. Not my best segue, but I'm sticking to it. I was wondering. It wasn't great. Gonna... Okay. But Addy, you're, it's week two of the trial. You know, the first week involved a lot of executives on the stand, a lot of internal emails. I would say everybody was a little loosey-goosey with document production this week, it's a bunch of experts, like antitrust experts, and things have tightened up a little bit, but there's still a lot going on. Yeah. You know, so it's we had one day of more executives. Uh, the most fun, weird thing of the week happened, which was that they fought over a banana. And then since then, we've had three <laughs> days of expert witnesses who are just getting into incredibly exhaustive detail about how you define the market that everyone is fighting over. Yeah. So if you are coming to this cold and... I am so sorry if you're coming to the broadcast in the middle of also a little jealous. Yeah. So you're coming to this cold 
Apple uh, makes the iPhone, as you may or may not know, on the iPhone. <laughs> we're starting there. <laughs> if you if you are coming to the Verge Cast, you know what Apple and the iPhone are. Uh, God bless you. You're out of your comfort zone, and I applaud you. But Apple makes the iPhone to do an in-app purchase for most things. So you open an app, you want to buy something. For anything digital, Apple takes a 30% cut. If you're a small developer, they take a smaller cut. But for big developers at scale, it's 30%. That rule is unbendable. Epic, which makes Fortnite, wishes to bend this rule. They put Fortnite on the phone, and they issue a hotfix. Their word is part of something called Project Liberty, also their word, where they put their own payment system into Fortnite, bypassing Apple's payment system. Apple kicks them off the store. Epic files an antitrust lawsuit. Here we are. So that's I just contextually, that's where we are. And now what they are fighting over is, at a, if I'm getting this correctly, what the market that Apple has monopolized in and what market Fortnite is in? Yeah, roughly. Epic's argument is, first of all, that it's not just a game company. It makes the Unreal Engine. It makes the Epic Game Store, which is like a meta game thing. And it bought House Party, a social video app, a couple years ago. And it's saying also that the thing that's at issue here is transactions. That, like, the market Apple has monopolized is not like the digital games market, it is the transaction market. So that should apply to like the entire app ecosystem. Apple's like, you made a game, we have rules that apply to games. There are lots of other places you can go to get games. Fortnite is on literally every other platform. What are you doing? This is a thing about games. We clearly don't have a monopoly on games. And then there's like a lot of extremely hilarious marginal conversation about what is a game. Yes, it just keeps popping up. Well, and it keeps popping up in scenarios that are completely, like, at cross-purposes. So, like, are you going to define a game in terms of whether or not it is, like, interactive code that poses a threat to your computer or your phone? Is it a game in terms of whether it's categorized as a game on the store? Is it a game in terms of, like, it's a separate product? Like, there are just all these different definitions, and if you think of them in a sort of aesthetic sense, it just turns into this hilarious, weird muddle. <laughs> well, like, Roblox just keeps coming up in this conversation, which is like a, a Minecrafty game in which you can create other games, right? Like, No, a game has a beginning, an end, and challenges in place. <laughs> this is my favorite definition, which is from one of the Apple executives, um, that was, in fact, talking about why p games inside Roblox aren't really games. Is Correctly defining a game itself, a game. Yes. We need to make a game where you define a game. Yeah. Does if it you, have if, a beginning and end in challenges? Because otherwise it's not a game. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we can definitely make a game where you, the, the object is to define a game. Well, so that now, is, there are now multiple game jams based on this. So you can enter one of those. End, um, the beginning, end, and challenges? The beginning, end, and challenges and the uh, unspeakable games from last week where Apple criticized Epic for hosting another game store that had like adult content in it. Actually, this is the, we should talk about this for a second. So we had you on the show last week on Friday. And on that Friday, this trial went into just like pure hilarity because of this itch.io situation. Just walk us through that real quick. Okay, so... There are like three layers of meta store here, but part of the trial is involves Epic wants to put its own Epic Game Store onto iOS as a competitor to the App Store. The Epic Game Store, as its name suggests, is mostly a store for games, but it's been slowly adding things that aren't 
strictly game related, like Spotify and the Brave browser are on it. And just before the trial started, it added, I don't actually remember what the real way is to pronounce it. Uh, Itch.io is the thing. It's a game store and its deal is basically being this sort of small, very easy to access like indie store, hosts a lot of really small games. It's where I put my games. It also hosts adult content. And so through like this sort of transitive property, Apple decided that this means that Epic Game Store is hosting porn, uh, the titles <laughs> of which it cannot speak in federal court, but they are both <laughs> offensive and sexualized. And so then this got into uh, like there was this whole fight over, okay, well, Apple's saying that we need to keep the iPhone locked down and safe. So if Epic gets to put its game store on iOS, is that going to mean that there's just this pornographic free-for-all? The judge seemed to take it like seriously enough to ask some sort of follow-up questions. And then Apple also got back and basically tried to get Epic to throw Itch.io in Apple's words from a different scenario under the bus um, oh that they brought up the issue again. They're like, look, now that you know that there are these, there's this offensive content on HIO, are you going to take it off the store? Like, are you going to keep hosting it? And Epic kind of punted and they said that they support it and nothing has happened. HIO posted very funny tweets about it. People have started game jams based on it. And it was also sort of the background for the weird banana thing that happened the next week. <laughs> Can we please just start to finish explain the banana thing i mean maybe not the very Wait, start can, before but... we do that can i just okay. remind everyone that safari is on the iphone and that you are mm. mere clicks away from the wildest porn in human history in safari like this is such a weird argument for apple to make you know what is actually a weirder argument is a thing that came up later in um i wrote about a think yesterday or today or sometime in this lifetime about how Apple is also trying to make the argument that it is super open. And so it allows you to buy games on Steam and then you can like remote play those games. If you have like a gaming PC, you can stream those to your iPhone. Uh, Steam has a really explicitly anything goes policy. A couple years ago, they were <laughs> like, if it's not straight up trolling or illegal, we'll leave it up there. So you can also absolutely buy just unspeakable things on Steam and then you can stream <laughs> them to your iPhone. And Apple made a big deal about how being able to use that process is really great and a sign that there's competition. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, like we talk about content moderation too much, but like it's weird that on Apple's own app store, if you download the Tumblr app, Tumblr was censoring Tumblr. If you download the Reddit app, the Reddit app actively censors the content of the Reddit website per Apple's demands. That's a weird place for the store to be in, right? Like you shouldn't, we shouldn't totally be comfortable with that. And yes, you can just go look at Reddit on the web and that's fine. But like, it's weird that the Reddit app from Reddit has to meet Apple's content standards to be in the app store. And there's no other way to get that app. Well, and what's also weird about that is if you install the another browser from the app store, you can use the browser to go to Reddit and see the content that the Reddit app can't do. So it's not like <laughs> only stuff on the app store needs to be censored. Yeah. This also came up with Parler. Like Parler, the thing whose deal is we do not censor anything at all. Like they changed their content for iOS. And then there was Discord. Yeah, it's really strange. Yeah, it's just like a weird it's not really related to this 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 lawsuit, but like Apple's making it they're like proud of it. 
that they reach into apps in this way. That's kind of why it's like about that's part of the lawsuit is that Apple offers this really specific kind of experience and Epic wants to stop them from offering this kind of experience. And it's like an experience that lots of people demonstrably want to buy into, whether or not they like that particular part of it. Yeah. Okay. This brings us to the naked banana. Yes. So there is a character in Fortnite or a skin known as Peely. Peely is a humanoid banana. He's terrifying. (laughs) I went and looked up like videos of Peely and he's like eaten and like drunk as a smoothie. And it's really scary. I don't know. I don't really play Fortnite, but uh, Peely's kind of disturbing. I feel like you and I have known each other for so long. We're like, we're talking about a lawsuit with like, Fucking banana. Anyhow. Uh, So anyway, um, yeah. So (laughs) the first, the week started with Apple decided it wanted to prove Fortnite was a game. And so it just literally brought up Fortnite and you just had like an hour long Fortnite tutorial. uh, And that included the lobby. And that included, okay, I I pulled this up so I could read it. We have in front of a new set set of images. And what is the screen showing? And then this was being asked to uh, Epic's marketing VP, Matthew Weisinger. Uh, This is your matchmaking lobby, the attorney. And we have a large yellow banana here, don't we? In a tuxedo? (laughs) Yes, that is Peely. And it's Peely, did you say? Yeah. And in fact, in the tuxedo, he's known as Agent Peely, correct? That's correct. We thought it better to go with the suit than the naked banana since we are in federal court this morning. I mean, it's why do they need to talk about the banana? What is what is the legal purpose of bringing up the banana, much less the whether or not the banana is wearing a tuxedo? I think that it was basically just a joke because it's objectively funny that you have a banana in a suit. But the problem is that then they added the implication, like after everyone had decided that Apple was weird and prudish and like freaking out about inappropriate content, and then they brought up the uh, naked bananas in federal court. So that meant that <laughs> Epic's attorney decided to bring this up later. So two hours later, they're doing cross-examination. Okay, a little bit of a digression, says Epic's attorney. We talked about Peely, our banana. Remember that? (laughs) I do. And there may have been an implication that to show Peely without a suit would have been appropriate. Inappropriate. Do you recall that? Yes. Is there anything inappropriate about Peely without a suit? No, there, there is not. If we could just put on the screen a picture of Peely. Is there anything inappropriate about Peely without clothes? It's just a banana, ma'am. <laughs> it's just, what a ride it's been for 10 years. Oh, my God. And it feels like we're right back where we started. Um, all of this is like they're defining these markets. They are trying to define a game. Fundamentally esoteric definitions. Like, you can define it. Well, there's a beginning and end and, and, and challenges. There are multiple other competing definitions, but at the end of the day is the big question here is, are the apps that you get from the app store, does Apple control the experiences inside of the apps or do the software developers, right? And one of the big ones is if you want to buy something in an app, should Apple get a cut of having pushed that button? Should a developer even be able to tell you that there's another way to pay? They're, they kept on calling them anti-steering provisions, which seems like it seems so technical. Like it doesn't it so precisely describes the thing that it describes nothing at all. I actually wanted you to explain this because there's a whole big part of the trial that hinges on the legality of anti-steering. 
They've been drawing comparisons to an American Express case that found that you could actually have these provisions, which are basically where if you can get a better deal elsewhere, like if you could, I don't know, pay less with, this was not the case, but pay less with like a Visa card or something that American Express could say like, okay, merchants, you can't tell people that you have this other cheaper deal. Yeah. So the the, the case that you're talking about, Addy, is Ohio versus American Express. I am utterly fascinated by the inside baseball here because Amex's law firm in that case, Cravath, is Epic's law firm in this case. And so in the Amex case, Ohio, the Department of Justice, sues Amex and says, in your contracts, you charge a higher transaction fee for people using their Amex card. In your contracts with merchants, you prevent them from saying things like, we would prefer that you use Visa, which charges a lower fee. Everyone thinks, everyone thinks Amex is going to lose this case. Big antitrust lawsuit goes up to the Supreme Court. You can't tell a merchant, like, do the cheaper, like, right? Supreme Court comes back, stunner of a decision. This is fine. It's a two-sided market. And the market for merchant contracts and the market for consumer payments are different. Amex and tell the merchants, if you want to sign a contract with us, you have to abide by our rules. Stunner of a decision. There's um, an article about Kravath winning this case in a magazine called Law Dragon, and the article is titled Redemption Road. And the subheadline <laughs> is Kravath traversed a do or die path to a U.S. Supreme Court victory for Amex that will change competition for years to come. Amex is like, this was a bet the company case, and these, these guys won it for us. Now that same law firm is on the other side with Epic saying Apple's prohibition on saying you can have another payment processor is illegal. It's crazy. I'm just like trying to imagine like the, the board meeting where they're like, we're going to take the Epic case and like the one like junior associate in the background being like, guys, guys, we just won the other case. <laughs> it's the opposite. Of it's we- like, it's like Brett Favre playing for the Vikings against the Packers. You yes, just can't imagine it's like it. that. And at the end he throws an interception and loses and they don't go to the Super Bowl. And I just don't know if anybody at Epic was watching oh, the playoffs that year. Um, yeah. It's nuts. So I'm going to make like, a Blake Bortles joke here if we keep going here. So also the experts, there are two dueling experts right now. They were on the same side in the Amex case. Like, there's all kinds of crazy antitrust base inside baseball going on here because this is fundamentally a tight knit community of like legal experts that no one paid attention to. It's like you lifted a rock and they all came scurrying out. Like, they don't know what to do. And they're like, Am I wearing pants? Like, these are just the wildest deep sea creatures of the law. And now they're all just like on different sides. Anyway, I think the point of this is it feels like the judge has way more optionality now in this case because they're starting to say things like, well, maybe Apple can keep it locked down, but this prohibition on telling people they can pay on the web cheaper because they keep, she keeps coming up. The judge keeps coming back to, we can just buy V bucks on the web and Epic keeps coming back to, well, we can't even tell people they can do that. And it feels like there's like the judges, there are narrow lanes now for the judge to go down that didn't exist before or like they weren't part of Epic's demands. The question is just whether any of that will be acceptable to either one of these sides. Because if the judge says, no, the store is fine, the in-app purchase this thing is fine, but you can't tell app developers that the web doesn't exist, right? And they can't even tell their customers you can go over here for cheaper. Like, that might be an acceptable outcome here. 
And there's like a lot of app, like John Gruber is like, that is fine. Just Apple should let their own developers say what the rules are. And Apple prohibits that right now. But I can't shake, and I'm wondering at if this is coming out in the trial or if this is coming through for the judge. I cannot shake the sense that Apple really believes that the apps on the iPhone are like an extension of the operating system, like an extension of the app store. And so even the transactions in those apps are Apple's transactions, as opposed to the way I think about software, which is like there's an operating system and then you run software on top of it. And the app store distributes the software, but then the apps can do whatever they want. And that's like a pretty big conceptual difference here. And I don't think I ever really realized that Apple, Apple thinks it's all one thing. I mean, I think the most sort of illustrative comparison that I, or like thing I've seen Apple's lawyers and experts describe this as is like matchmaking, that basically they don't necessarily see this as you are installing a thing and you bought that thing and now the developer's selling you stuff. It's like, okay, we bring these people together in this ecosystem. We're like a venue that we host your apps and we bring, we make something that's so cool that people come and use them. And therefore, because of this, like we have created this scenario that allows you to go and like work with the, and like reach your community. And therefore we deserve a commission on anything that happens. Yeah. But like, I don't know. Every time we tweet about this, there's someone, some set of people tweet back. Like if you put your product on the shelf at target, you're not allowed to put a sticker on your product that says it's cheaper at Walmart. And I completely understand that comparison insofar as the app store itself, right? right. You've got your app in Apple's app store. You should not be able to market it as, hey, by the way, like you don't have to use a store. You can go get it on the web. But that would be weird for Apple to allow. It's just like not even good merchandising. But once you buy the Keurig or whatever from Target, you take it home there's nothing that says Target has to get a cut of every K-cup you buy or whatever, right? Like, yeah. Keurig can then market to you. It can do some weird DRM scheme and utterly, <laughs> utterly fail to, to succeed at that. Like, Keurig has a relationship with you, a customer that's got a product in your life. You can buy K-cups for anywhere. Here, Apple is saying, no, even when you get the app and now you have it, we still need to be in the middle of that experience on the phone. In a way that sort of like if you're a, you run a store and you sign a contract with a credit card company like Amex, Amex gets to say you don't tell people that they, it's cheaper if they use Visa. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, it, man, the <laughs> Amex decision is very complicated and everyone hates it. So mm, great. The judge that. also said she was not necessarily convinced that the situations were comparable, partly because of the stickers on like cash registers that she brought those up, that if you go to a store, maybe um, like the vendor can't tell you that Discover or like Visa are cheaper, but you at least have those stickers up that are like, well, you can use these three payment methods. And she says that, okay, it's not necessarily clear that there even is that option thanks to the anti-steering provisions on an app. So even if you're not mentioning that like it's cheaper, you should be able to see that there are other options. Yeah. Um, so it's possible that she will like go further along those lines. This explains mm -hmm. why when I buy anything, people are like the cash, you know, the cashiers are like looking at the stickers. Like I can't say it, but visa. <laughs> I mean, obviously everyone at stores just wants you to use cash and they will actually like let you pay less if you use cash because credit card companies are all terrible compared to cash for them. Yeah. But it's like a really interesting 
to continue with this comparison, the rates charged by credit card companies for transaction fees, for merchant fees are competitive, right? And that was part of this decision. Like this is a competitive market. I think the Supreme Court said something like, there's nothing wrong with being hyper competitive. And that's what we see here. Not like antitrust stuff. Like, okay, it's competitive. You've identified the competition here in an app. If you want to sell somebody a digital good, you can't even gesture at the notion of competition. It's Apple's payment processor or nothing. And also in an environment where the idea is, say, that you have this entire set of stores that are like just Amex stores. That's the other thing that keeps coming up in the trial is whether the iPhone itself and like the Android devices are a serious lock-in issue. That like if the cost of switching between these ecosystems is this high, then Apple has a lot of leeway to like raise prices or do anti-competitive things in theory because people aren't going to go over to Android because there's this like big cost at the beginning. I expected Epic to make a bigger show of this argument because, it, you know, early on they, they were very clear that, you know, iMessage and all of your apps and data, they, they'd unearthed all this stuff about it and they'd put it out into evidence. And I haven't heard them make, like, directly make the Apple makes switching costs higher argument. It's been sort of like it, Apple's monopoly. Like, obviously, it's hard to leave, but not the Apple actively makes it hard to leave. No, they've made the, like, they had one of their expert witnesses who didn't make an Apple explicitly makes it hard, but a, this ecosystem, like, is very expensive and therefore it is hard. Yeah. Um, so I'm, they've I'm, definitely brought it up. But yeah, you're right. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just like, wait, like, Tim Cook is going to be on, on the stand. Like, I'm just like wondering, they're going to be like, so blue bubbles, you know, it's a thing, right? Like, is that what they're going to aim at with him? Like, they, they have these opportunities they haven't really taken yet. They have a bunch of Apple executives that they're either going to have – that they've got depositions from or they are going to call up. There's uh, Tim Cook or and like Eddie Q I think has a deposition. There's a bunch of people on Apple's side that just haven't come up yet. I cannot wait for Rock and Eddie Q to take the stand. So right now we're just sort of in expert testimony hell. We are. Um, we've had one expert and then we had a bunch of other experts who were rebutting that expert. And now we're back to the experts rebutting those experts and the original expert is going to come up tomorrow. Amazing. By the way, all the experts are like very highly paid. If you listening to this, you're like, man, you post pandemic career, just being a professional expert witness. It seems like a dream, to be honest, like just say some esoteric stuff about a sexualized banana, have lunch, take a break, say the other experts wrong. I'm oh man, no, one it. of them got absolutely, so there was this fight over whether, it's an ongoing fight over whether you can pay for various in-app purchases through a mobile browser. And so today, this one guy had produced this like entire report of apps that he said could, and Epic's lawyers just came up and made them click through like Candy Crush websites oh my God. and like Clash Royale's website to see if they could find out how to pay for these things. And it turns out it's actually very difficult to do. <laughs> and then they're just doing like the lawyer version of yelling at him. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I got to say, somebody who's in a marriage with two lawyers, the lawyer version of yelling at you is very enticing. Anyway, that's a trial. I want to bring up something else that's going on with Apple this week. As we're coming on Dieter, it's like Apple's getting all of its bad news out of the way at once. The the issue of trial really for, App, for Apple is it makes a ton of money taking a cut of in-app purchases in mobile games. Like Candy Crush Whales are like a huge source of revenue for Apple. Mobile game developers want to increase the pool of people playing mobile games. So more people buy stuff in-app. 
they do a lot of marketing. Historically, that marketing has been on, on Facebook platforms. It's like the cheapest way to get your app in front of other people. App install ads for Facebook, big business. Apple turns on app tracking transparency. Facebook's ad business takes a hit. We don't know how much yet, but like 96% of people have opted out of cross app tracking. The same time Apple adds ad units to the app store. Yeah, right. They specifically added an app unit to the search page, which is kind of amazing. So, like at the same time that a bunch of other companies are unable to use data that, that might help them figure out what apps you use and therefore what apps you might be interested in using and therefore advertise on Facebook, that you can now buy those ads against searches inside the app store. And then you know they just kind of put that out there at the at the same time, I guess, because. I don't know, everyone's distracted by Epic or new iPads or whatever. Um, we, had a, we had a previous CFO at Vox Media, and he used to describe his job as just trying to catch the money. Okay. I mean, he was a, yeah. he was a very charming man, but he would be like, being a CFO is like, the money's a basketball, and I just got to catch it. It was like a real thing he used to say. And like, I feel like the App Store team did exactly that. They're like, man, all that money's got to go somewhere. Like, we might as well just hold out a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> but this was taken in just like it's such an aggressive move to kneecap Facebook's ad business in this way and then yeah. just kind of divert that money to yourself. So that's one. Well, the big question is like, how big is the ad, the business of selling ads for apps inside the app store? Really? It's unclear. Well, So this is the second thing. Right. It yeah. might be a small business. It might be a crappy business. Then they went out and hired this guy Antonio Garcia Martinez, who is just like a notorious, like asshole character who wrote a book called Chaos Monkeys about building Facebook's ad business and being on the growth team. Yeah. And being ruthless and terrible whilst he did it. And, you know, saying nobody actually cares about privacy. So why would we why would we at Facebook? Um, In addition to many uh, misogynistic things, it turns out. Right. So Apple hires that guy to come work on its ads team. At the same time, they're kneecapping Facebook's business with the ad tracking, which you might support that you should you should just ask people they want to be tracked, like whatever. But they've obviously created an opportunity for themselves and they're going to aggressively pursue it. And they hired like. I'm certain there's lots of ex Facebook ads employees who are very aggressive. You could hire. They hired a the famous one who wrote a book full of how he's a, a sexist jerk. So he's yeah. hired. So now it's like, if you think about Tim Cook, when he was asked about Mark Zuckerberg and what he would do if he was running Facebook, and Tim Cook's answer is, I wouldn't be in that position. Mm-hmm. They hired the guy that put Facebook in that position. Yeah. Like famously <laughs> part of that process. Yeah. So like, you know, there's a, another cycle. Screenshots of chaos monkeys circulate on Twitter. The, it's bad, right? He's like, all women in the Bay Area are stupid. They're all weak. It's like all just like stuff like this. And he thinks he's this like great writer. And like, I would just make a lot of people have made the Hunter S. Thompson comparison. I would just make the argument that describing what you're like at work and using the frame of I'm Hunter S. Thompson at my corporate job selling advertising. <laughs> that's not an excuse. You don't, it's not an excuse, man. <laughs> like, I get it. I understand why people want to make the comparison, but this isn't guy in ad sales. Anyway. There's a Apple employees, thousand of them sign a petition. Zoe and Casey and Liz broke that news last night. They got the petition hours later. Face, uh, Apple just clips this dude. 
Yeah. I want to pause on the competition briefly because we have seen most big tech companies have some sort of white collar employee, like, I don't know, walkout or organization or agitation. Uh, Google has most of it, I think. Uh, A lot has happened there, especially with the stuff that came out on Andy Rubin. They had that walkout. Amazon has had, you know, talking about worker conditions. There's been a bunch of employee agitation at all the big tech companies, but Apple's employees, for whatever reason, have not publicly had a, hey, company that employs me, you're terrible and you need to stop doing this thing in such a big way. And so this petition coming out of Apple is, I, I don't, I don't want to say overdue, but it is surprising that it has taken this long for us to hear from Apple's employees saying, we are holding our own company to account because that moment has happened for every other big tech company. Yeah. And I think, again, there are, maybe you think Antonio is the best person to grow your ads business. There are probably some arguments that he is. There are probably some arguments he's not. But like just from a turn the knobs and make the money flow perspective, there's probably a someone else who's like 85% as good, who doesn't come with this baggage, right? And the big question for me is, and I think for everybody, is Apple had to have known he wrote this book. The book yeah, got a lot did. of reviews, and almost all yeah. of the reviews were like, whew, this book is pretty misogynistic. Like, I, also just, it, like it's I like hidden that. information. I had not actually, like, I'd heard the one bad quote before all this, but I went through and read the Apple's employee's letter. The thing that's, like, actually creepy to me is not necessarily even the big headline, all women in the Bay Area are weak, and I would, after the apocalypse, I would sell them for a shotgun shell thing. Yeah. It's just that there are a bunch of excerpts that are pretty much overtly saying, yeah, the thing I look at when I see female employees is whether they're hot and whether they dress well, just over and over and over again. And that's just like, that's not just being misogynistic. That's saying like, you are really unable to deal with female employees at work (laughs) as anything other than like people that you find attractive. And that seems like a really bad thing for someone who's going to be in a position of power at a company. Especially in a, like a growing new business, right? Like Apple's not good at ads. So whatever character that business takes will be the character of its lead. Like, all of that's bad. All of this is known, right? Like, hey, we should, like, hire this guy. Has anybody read his book? Is, like, Apple doesn't miss that. Like, they're a rigorous company. Anyway, so they get rid of this guy. I am firmly of the belief that they just fired him. Like, can you imagine Tim Cook, like, getting the alert? And, like, (laughs) I, I just guarantee he was like, what does this make it go away? Right? Like, (laughs) He doesn't need to do this. They can just hire somebody else. The reaction that's like, yeah, another woke business doesn't know how to. Like, I saw one today that was like, this is a sign from Apple that they don't value creatives. And it's like, what? I I share that. I won't say, I don't want to like lead to a harassment game. But I saw like a bunch of these tweets. I'm like, you think Apple's going to have a problem attracting creatives? Because they let one guy go the day after he started. Like, Trent Reznor used to work at Apple. I think they're going to be fine. Like, I, there's just a part of this where, with this trial, with the services revenue, with this, like, extremely opportunistic ads thing that they're doing, the bloom is coming off the rose of Apple as the idealistic company. Right? Yeah. Like, they're obviously a business that is chasing growth and it's such a big business already that they have to do aggressive things to move the needle. And like, that's the dangers. That's the, to me, that's the real danger zone for the company, not 
are creative still going to like, yes, of course they are. It's Apple, right? That's, that is their, their DNA is like serving and enhancing creatives. But what you see next to it is this hunger to control the entire experience of the phone, not because they necessarily want to make it great, but because that's how they can grow their revenue. And like there, there's like an ickiness there that I can't quite get around. It, it, the frame of, Apple is a company that might do dangerous things or bad things because they're chasing growth. Like just out of context, like you could take company is chasing growth and therefore is doing bad things and apply it to like any number of tech scandals over the past five years. Um, yeah. and so, but no one's ever put that frame on Apple. And so it's really interesting. We, I mean, we sort of have when we started to worry about the subscription revenue thing, but to specifically talk about chasing growth. Um, well, it's, it's yeah. happened in regards to China, but it just, we haven't have really had a domestic issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And the, you know, there was more China supplier news this week that people were being forced to work in, in inhumane conditions. Like, and Apple has ma- has managed to stay away from that stuff or at least distance itself from that stuff. This thing where Antonio got fired, like, that's the employees publicly tweeting, like, we want this guy gone. Like, that's not our yeah. values. So we'll see how that goes. I want to end with you, Addy, by, by making comparison to another tech giant dispute because this is really interesting to me. So Roku and Google are fighting and like the dynamics of the fight look exactly to me like the dynamics of the Apple Epic fight. So Roku said, Hey Google, we want YouTube TV to work in a certain way. Google pushed back and said, no, we want to use these codecs. We want this data from you. We want this preferred search placement. Roku said, screw it. We're kicking YouTube TV off the store, the Roku store. YouTube then in a platform fight, just added YouTube TV to the regular YouTube app in a hot fix, <laughs> yeah. which is exactly what Epic did with Fortnite. <laughs> and now Roku's like, what are we going to do? We can't have YouTube on our platform. Like, you can get rid of YouTube TV. Not a lot of people use it. You cannot block YouTube from the Roku platform. So Roku's response, uh, they gave it to, to Chris Welch. These are the actions of an unchecked monopolist. Which is weird because Roku controls the platform there, but YouTube is the monopoly on YouTube. <laughs> Do you see any parallels there? Is, is, is that being like, is this trial like starting to have de- like those effects where people are just like influenced by it? I mean, if you're actually talking about literal legal parallels, it seems like it would be pretty hard to map the, this dispute on to Apple versus like Epic versus Apple just because the positions seem kind of weirdly totally reversed but it does feel like ever since the epic suit in part because epic had its whole like project liberty we're going to like organize the coalition for app fairness we're going to make this a huge deal like it feels like a certain level of floodgates have been opened that like just sort of open beefing with big tech companies (laughs) is becoming more of a thing (laughs) well they're trying to show they're competing maybe this is all just like performance art of competition like we're not monopolists look at this beef we had (laughs) <laughs> and like maybe they're all just age managing it, but I, I think you're right. Uh, Liz always refers to May as, as meltdown May, and like yeah, off off to a tremendous start. I actually hope that these platforms all fight a little bit more, and they realize that users are just mad at them, and it is in their best interest to like work together and achieve interoperability in various ways. I'm an optimist. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but like this level of like low grade warfare is like. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for Apple's image. It's not good for the people who want to watch YouTube TV on Roku. It makes everybody just look petty. And like at some point, I'm very curious if people are listening to this and you're in this world, if 
the cost of the public relations hit is worth the business terms that you're trying to get. Cause to me, the, like the pendulum is starting to swing in the wrong way. All right, Addy, thank you so much. I know you want to get back to the trial. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Monica Chin talking about Sonic. Fox creative. This is advertiser content from Kohler. I think when we think of design, we're like, beautiful poster, gorgeous graphics. But I also think design has like a place in making sure that people feel the best that they can be. Hi, I'm Laura Delorado. I'm a group creative director at Vox Creative. During my nine to five and my five to nine, I've always got good design on the brain. It's metaphorically and physically glowing. It's like the Aurora Borealis. Which is exactly why I was so excited to meet the new Me 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet. On first introduction, it legit just waved a hand at me. Not actual waved a hand, but the lid moved up and greeted me for the use. But right now we're in a showroom, so I can't actually use it. Functions like this, a hands-free greeting, and form combine in the Numi to elevate the everyday. It's a sculpture that begs for someone to like rest their body on it and walk away feeling really comfortable. A temperature-controlled bidet, the heated seat, automatic self-cleaning cycles, access to smart home functions thanks to a built-in Alexa, the Numi's got it all for everyone. The bottom has this really beautiful green glow, and it's almost as if they knew that was my special color, because if you go into my bathroom at home, the entire bathroom is a mint green. It's like the new me knew that I was showing up. And what's really cool about this is that there is this like circular sphere metal piece that like allows for you to change the color on the bottom. So if I'm not in my mint green era, which I often am, I can be in another era, my like calming blue, my like rosy pink, like whatever I need to feel. It's, it's like the Sistine Chapel of toilets. Experience a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with the Numi 2.0. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for the podcast comes from Hims. Look, we all need help, but for some of us guys, it can be a real challenge to be so vulnerable. There are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash verge. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash verge for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash verge. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Monica Chin is here. Welcome, Monica. Hello. Thank you for having me. So we got to talk to you about a bunch of laptops, but 
you and I have had like many adventures with Starlink over the past few weeks. It is infrastructure week here at The Verge. We've run a number of stories about the future of our country's infrastructure, and that covers a lot of things. It covers uh, charging networks for EVs. It covers, uh, obviously, broadband. Uh, Andy Hawkins interviewed Pete Buttigieg, who's Secretary of Transportation, and how to increase EV adoption and what cities should look like. Uh, Nicole Wetzman did a video on flushable wipes and how they're destroying our, our sewer systems across the country. So we've kind of taken an expansive look at infrastructure. We've done a lot on broadband, of course, over the years. And we wanted to cap off Infrastructure Week at The Verge, which, but you know, it's like a joke, right? The Trump administration is always trying to do Infrastructure Week. We finally did it. We actually did it. We, we actually launched did it. The, like, the, the website got launched. We <laughs> made Infrastructure Week happen. And then 10 Andy years Hawkins later, got, we did Infrastructure Week. Andy Hawkins got Pete Buttigieg to use the phrase petromasculinity. It's all happening. It's all there for you. And we realized every time we've done a broadband piece, for, I don't know, for a year now, the mm-hmm. comments and tweets are like, Starlink will fix it. This won't be a problem when Starlink comes out. So we've... I'm, uh, I'm getting it complaining about just on Twitter like tweeting about my slow upload speed. It's like, oh, you need Starlink. It's like, I'm in the middle of a city. Do you, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, D- Dieter just moved house. Uh, yep. Congratulations, Dieter. And you have worse internet now than you did before. I do. Pay more for it. <laughs> it's the classic story of America. And when you tweet like, oh, my upload speeds are bad or Comcast didn't show up, everyone's like, Starlink will fix it. You wait until Starlink. So uh, I, as I'm sure many nerds listening to this have been doing, a bunch of Verge staffers are on the pre-order list. We're like trying to get it. And I typed in my address and lo and behold, it's available in my area. And I hit the button and it showed up six days later, which is not the experience most people are having. Most people are on this interminable pre-order list. So I get it, set it up, realize like, oh, I've got a bunch of trees in the way. I've got to figure out where to move it. And then I took off. I did the Vergecast uh, from my parents' house in Wisconsin. And while I was gone, I thought to myself, Oh, Monica has horrible internet where she is. I'll just like give it to Monica. Like, we'll just see if it works. And then I, I delivered it to Monica in the, in the parking lot of a grocery store. It was very exciting. Monica, how'd that go? Well, tried to set it up in a couple different places. Um, I tried the middle of my driveway. I tried the middle of my lawn. I tried a different spot in the middle of my lawn. Sometimes it just told me that it couldn't connect to the network. And then sometimes it looked like it was trying to connect to the network and then failed to connect, but kept trying. But in in no case did it actually work and give me internet, (laughs) which was very sad, unfortunately. It did, like, the internet would show up, but then when I said, please load a web page, it did not load a web page. So what's interesting about this, and I I bring it up and I want to talk to Monica about the actual, like, plugging it in, where does the dish go process, but... The Starlink network, there's you know thousands of satellites in space. They are controversial, right? They're like interfering with astronomers. Starlink has a plan to paint them black. That Which, plan, this is true. This is a true thing. What, but what does it? What does it do? What does it achieve? <laughs> well, there's like optical refraction that it like helps with, but also uh, it okay, absorbs sure. heat. Wait, this is a real thing. It absorbs heat. So the satellites get hotter, which interferes with infrared astronomy. So now right. this last batch, of, this is a real thing. They painted the side that faces away from Earth white. Okay. So there's like Good. two-tone SCA satellites. The satellites are in the sky. Anyhow, so 
right? Starlink is a constellation of thousands of small satellites whipping across the earth. There is a like hardcore technical advancement in the satellite dish. It's called a phased array antenna, which means it's basically lots of little antennas and the dish can aim them in different ways. Um, one of them is electronic, like you can just aim them inside the dish. And the other one is like mechanical. The dish has two motors and it can rotate and move. This is like a big deal because it can, it means it can track a focused beam of energy from one of the satellites. It runs way faster than if you've ever had HughesNet or any other satellite system. The grid is like a honeycomb shape of hexagons across the United States. So I look on the map and there's all these cool user maps of Starlink coverage areas all over the web. I'm in a grid that has service. Monica, it appears that you're in a grid that has service. And the Starlink, you don't, you don't have to like sign into it. So it doesn't, it's just like, it'll try. Yeah. I mean, it's but, weird. Literally 10 minutes from me, it is available. But when I put in my address or like anything with my zip code, it says not available. So you, you the dish comes to our house. We try to move it into one of these other grid uh, areas. It doesn't work. I get it back from Monica. I've been using it for the past week and change. Man, there's nothing like a product that you don't have to just glue your hopes and dreams on. And then you get it. <laughs> and it's the Nokia N900. Right? Like, Ooh, that's the... That's, that's the a deep e cut. <laughs> that is... Uh, if you're a new VergeCast listener, you know the entire site was thrown into disarray for like two weeks when we reviewed the Nokia N900 because we said it was bad. But was it like the N920 or something? Maybe it was the N920. Uh, it was the N920. It was that the was N920. The Whew, like, a week, like a week of controversy because we said that this phone that failed is bad. That's where I'm at with Starlink. So here are, the, here are the good things about Starlink, and then I'll tell you some bad things. Good things are when it works, it is fast. They're only aiming to hit 100 megs down and like mm -hmm. 20 up. When it's working really well, you can get like 225 and 24 up. That's wow. good. That's like reasonably good internet service. Sometimes the latency is low. Sometimes it's like, you know, at best I've seen it be like 25 milliseconds, which is not as good as my wired internet, but it's, it's good, right? Like competitive with uh, my 4G connections. It is not reliant on any cable company. It's just like a, I think that is the plus of this system, right? If there are satellites above you and you can connect to them, you can buy this thing from Elon Musk and you can tell Comcast or Spectrum to get out of here. I think people really like that. Here are the bad things. You need perfect line of sight to the sky. And the sky is defined as a 100 degree cone off the front of the dish with a minimum elevation of 25 degrees because the satellites are pretty low in the sky, at least where I am. That's like low and wide. So where I am, there are trees all around me. And so I can't, the satellites are effectively behind the trees. Mm -hmm. So you got to get it up. And like people go to wild lengths. Like I think that the Starlink subreddit is like currently one of my favorite places on the internet because it's just people like hacking with a toy that is in beta and pretty hackable and they're all just like figuring it out together. It's like this collective project to make this thing work. So you got to get it really high. If you do find, and I, uh, my, right now I have it located about 60 feet in front of my house, pointed back up and over the house because my okay. house on a hill. So it's like a way to make it look sort of up and over. 
my chimney and the top of some trees are enough to obstruct Starlink for two hours a day. Sure. Like, two hours a day. Two wow. hours a day. It's just obstructed and the speeds collapse. So like even the merest whisper of a tree, a pole will like take Starlink out of the game. Uh, the only comparison I can make is like a millimeter wave, right? We like live through an entire hype cycle about millimeter wave 5G. And if you're not standing on the right street corner of a city, it like doesn't work. But if you are on the right street corner, whoo, it's good. And so is the idea here that like everyone just needs to put this on a pole on the roof? Yeah. But it yeah. ships. And Monica, when I delivered the box to Monica, I saw her. I saw your face. <laughs> like it ships with like, it's just like a little itty bitty metal tripod. They're like, Starlink is oh. knee high. And everyone thinks it's like this portable knee high dish because it's small. But it actually needs to be as high up as you can get it. So it can clear whatever is around you for that 100 degree cone. 25 degrees above the horizon. Now, if they launch more satellites, the minimum goes up to 40 degrees above the horizon, which is not that much more, but potentially mitigates some of this problem. So that's like just your first problem. You take it out of the box. You got to, it needs to find a pretty significant and weirdly located hole of, in the sky by kind of in a northerly direction. Then you do it and I got it to work and it was doing fine. And I like, try to make a zoom call on it. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Like it'll, it, it's fine, and then it just drops out, and the latency spikes. It, just, you know, it's in beta. I will offer them that it is beta product. We didn't give it a review score. You know, like fine. Their only promises are like sometimes it'll work, and they have, they have <laughs> met that promise. Like they say, yeah. Starlink is very open. Like it's gonna go down. It's gonna be weird. But you try to make a Zoom call, anything real time, Zoom, Slack. Mm -hmm. gaming, anything that requires like a sustained low latency real-time connection, just not usable on Starlink. Anything that buffers streaming 4K video, fine, yeah. right? It can kind of like overcome the connection dropouts. I don't know. Is that worth $99 a month? Like you just think about all of the hopes and dreams that are foisted onto this system. And that, like that's the reality of it. The thing is very cool. It's very much a consumer product. So yeah, Monica, what's the like, setup like? Um, it's so the dish itself is like a white plastic. It's very Elon. Like it's very it, cool. They made sure it looks cool. So the dish is like yeah. a white plastic. The top of it is like um, matte white. Um, okay. If it has heaters and sensors in it, so if it gets snow on it, it can kick on a snow melting mode and melt all the snow off the face of it, which I think is really cool. Then the cable, which is attached to the dish, which is. Again, if you think about you, the fact that you have to mount it really high and drill it back into your house, it would be better if both ends of the cable were free. But the cable's attached to the dish. That is a power over Ethernet cable. So there's a 100-foot power over Ethernet cable that you have to run into your house somehow. That plugs into a power adapter. Then there's another power over Ethernet plug on that same adapter, and that plugs into the Wi-Fi router. So all of the power comes okay. through this box, and you plug that box in the wall. So the Wi-Fi router is just a PoE Wi-Fi router. The actual Wi-Fi router is like a silver, it looks cool. It's like a silver wedge shape. We, no specs. Like, <laughs> we, we don't know. It's like five and two point. It's like basically a dual band Wi-Fi five router, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Reasonably good range, covered my entire house. No options. No options, no settings, no nothing. You can't change the Wi-Fi name in 
Password? You, that's all you can do. When you log in, you can, okay, it okay. prompts you to do those things. If you want to do those things again, hard yeah. reset the router, my friend. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, I mean, it's in beta. I'm like, but obviously all of the effort went into making the satellite part work. And they made that work. That's impressive. I was going to say, that's not a small amount of effort, it turns out. Yeah, I mean, is it good for astronomy that there's this many satellites in the sky and everyone's always mad all the time? I don't know. But it works. Like, yeah. It's impressive that it works. It's impressive they're launching more and more of these satellites all the time. It's impressive that they're trying to build this. Like, They don't want to manage the satellites, so they just tell the satellites where they think they should go and deploy them from the rocket, and the satellites figure it out. Yeah. And then that part works. They're trying to do the same thing with collision avoidance. And that part has been hairy. And there's been like two incidents where like they didn't communicate enough or things got really close. Controversy in space because of all these. Yeah. All to get internet access. Yeah. I mean, Neil, this all sounds way, way simpler than digging a trench. Yeah. No, it does. And putting a piece of, a, a straight, uh, a strand of glass in it like that. Uh, that's, uh, that's way more complicated than launching a, uh, <laughs> an autonomous mesh network of satellites into space. Like. Jeter, I haven't even gotten to the, the dream that the satellites themselves will form a mesh network in space communicating via lasers. Oh, okay. That's Starlink's next idea. Yeah. They're not there yet, but like in the Starlink engineers, like, here's the deal laser in a vacuum travels faster than light and fiber. So we'll okay. just do all the communication in space and we'll, we'll reduce latency that way. Like crazy Elon level engineering dreams from the Starling team. And all of that sounds more realistic than I will call Comcast and they will provide me a good service at a fair price. Like that's the story. <laughs> here. Yeah. Like there's nothing about this internet that is like spacey. Right, you're not getting anything other than internet access, but it feels more realistic that you will get good service at a fair price from this crazy engineering experience than from your local cable monopoly. I don't know how to feel about that. That's weird. But anyway, you plug it all in. Sometimes it works. Works for streaming stuff. I could not spend a day working on it. Mm. Just couldn't do it. It was impossible. Because you like need Slack. to do. Yeah, you need to do low latency Zoom calls. And also you need, you can't just take a two hour break. Uh, so when it's obstructed, it just slows down. It doesn't like die. Um, okay. But yeah. It's like, it's very, but like literally when I'm saying Slack, like Slack requires an active connection. It doesn't require a hot, like ultra low latency, but it requires like someone types at you, you get it. You type back at them. Starlink cannot handle this. Right. I feel like everyone's going to come for me now. I'm very, I've been very worried about publishing this <laughs> And I just keep coming back to the fact that, like, in America, we pay very high prices for very bad service. It's yeah. slow. The customer service is, like, sadistic. And this represents a way to escape it. And everyone's hopes and dreams have been, like, bolted onto Starlink. Mm -hmm. Like, when I was like, oh, Monica's bad internet, I'll just give it to her. Like, my frame of mind was like, oh, this will fix it. I mean, my frame of mind having used not. satellite internet for, like, over a year at this point was definitely not that optimistic. <laughs> they were claiming <laughs> they were claiming that it was going to not have all the satellite internet problems. And I was like, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, it's cool. I mean, I don't want to discount the, right. The technical achievements here, but there's just like wonky concept in the review 
It's very wonky. So there's like a, a telecom philosophy in the United States called facility-based competition. This is okay. a real thing. Yep. And so like it all came from MCI, which is an old telecom, like old long distance carrier. And they decided they weren't going to use the wired networks and they, sh- they shipped long distance voice calls over microwave transmissions. Yep. This is like a big deal. And like brought down all the rates and people went crazy and facility. So like everyone was like, this is the future. We're going to invent new ways of doing things. And then in Europe, which like comes and goes in waves and it's not always perfect and certainly sometimes fails. They're like, we're just going to put a bunch of fiber in the ground and anybody can lease it. And so like, if you live in London, there are like 50 options for you to get internet service that are all priced competitive at different speeds. It's way cheaper than here because everything's just running on a fiber network. And that's called service-based competition. And I tell you the wonky papers you can read about the pluses and minuses of both approaches are mostly written by telecom lobbyists. They're deeply (laughs) unfun to read. And like all of the thesis comes back to, especially on the U.S. side, facility-based competition is better. Don't you see how Europe is horrible? And I think all that has ever really gotten us is like WiMAX, which destroyed Sprint. Like a handful of uh, a handful of long distance carriers that are, are no longer existent, irrelevant, and now like oh Starlink no, I mean like it got a CDMA versus GSM. That was that was that was great. Who didn't love that? Yeah, <laughs> it's just like it's weird. It's there's like underlying telecom philosophy in the United States. It's like instead of competing to provide service over fiber, someone will invent something else. Yeah. And then Starlink is like also at the end of the day, all of our internet traffic runs over fiber. Or so because it does, it has to. It has to. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the point of this is Starlink is neat. Hopefully, people in the hinterlands can use it and it'll be great. If you are dreaming of Starlink, you should call like your local county commissioner and be like, put some fiber at my house. Cause that's the, that's the thing you actually, well, Neil, look, Neil, I know one's going to come after you for this. Uh, back in, back in 2012, when I reviewed the Lumia 920, I, I was, I was scathing. And so obviously how me, how mean I was to this phone, everybody had to come after me for it. I gave it a 7.9 <laughs> and I said that there were issues with LTE reception. I pointed out that there weren't a lot of apps on windows phone eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, my concluding line was, um, the, so- the software and hardware trade-offs inherent in Lumia 920 could be worth it if you're bought into the Microsoft ecosystem, but for most people, I don't think it's a sure bet. So I and was came brutal. for you. Yeah, that was brutal. There was another one we ran. I think it was Josh Topolsky who wrote something like, it's time for Microsoft to admit this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> and that one also set the world up. I'm just saying what reminds me uh, of Windows Phone with Starlink is not whether Starlink will succeed or fail. It is that everyone is imagining a product and layering yeah. all of their hopes and dreams on it. I asked her questions on Twitter and people are like, can I use it on a boat? And I'm like, dude, you can't use it in a field with a tree. But th- there's no trees on the ocean, Neilai. <laughs> <laughs> a boat like, is actually the perfect use a case. Fixed line of sight. Like how much do you want these motors to spin all the time? <laughs> it's just like every hope and dream you can have about internet. And I can't ignore the fact that it's next to the huge, enormous, insanely depressing 5G hype cycle. Mm-hmm. Right? Like what is, what did, 
the Jeep Pie and Verizon, everybody say about 5G investment, like rural broadband. The farmers are going to be in the field streaming live TikToks, changing the world <laughs> over their millimeter wave broad. And it's like, why don't we just do that? We published a map this week. This this what kicked off Infrastructure Week is this map of uh, broadband access speeds in America. And like the map is like a little controversial for a couple of reasons. One of the big problems in this country is that the FCC doesn't maintain this data. The ISPs self-report it and they are friendly to themselves. So they yeah. will just tell the FCC, like everybody in Idaho has access to gigabit internet speeds because they serve one house with it. And then like the right. radius around that house is big enough. So we use data from Microsoft services. So Microsoft is tracking people's connection speeds that use all their services, Xbox, Office 365, Azure, you name it. Yeah. The more controversial part is we use the internet, the government's definition of broadband, which is just 25 down. Which is terrible. Which is terrible. Like you can't have a household working from home and going to school in 25 down. And we only really point out the areas where less than 15% of people were getting 25 down. Right. But like huge swaths of the country have less than 50% of people getting 25 down. Where I live in upstate New York, 43% of people are using broad, quote unquote, broadband speed, which means most people are not. Yeah, I'd, have to, right. I'd be surprised if anyone around where I am is using it. I'm sure there are some people, but we get like four down. So <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, okay, but we picked this like, here's the desert. Not just like, here's a problem. Because if you went with, where is most of the country not getting 25 down? It's the whole country, right? If you pick 50%. It doesn't actually show you any information, except it sucks everywhere. Yeah. If you pick a lower number, you're like, okay, here are like the targeted real problems. But you look at this map, you look at all of the rhetoric around 5G, you look at all the same rhetoric around LTE. The cable companies right now are promoting 10G, which is very funny to me. Uh, which is just 10 gigabits down. It's not a, it's not a G. Oh my God. Yeah. They just like, okay. y'all like G's? Here's another. Yeah. And like, they just didn't do a good job. Like people aren't connected consistently and they're not connected at fast speeds. And like, of course, a bunch of Elon tweets about how he's going to fix it with science are like capturing everybody's imaginations. And I, the gap between that and what this thing is and what it could be is still, is still gigantic to me. I don't know, man. Maybe next week I'll try to do the show or Starlink. Please don't. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, my local ISP here in upstate New York is employee owned. They're very cool. Local ISPs are the future. That's all I'm saying. Also, um, they're huge nerds. And so when I call them for service stuff, the actual people who like engineer the network show up and we just like chit chat about network engineering. Oh, okay. Dream come true. I don't have a lot of friends up here. We're going to take a break. And we come back, we're going to talk to Monica about some laptops. We'll be right back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. 
In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Okay, we're back. Monica, laptop fever has hit America. In a manner of speaking. There was a giant drop of, I don't know, six, eight laptops that got announced because Intel has finally announced another chip. <laughs> they announce a new chip all the time. What is special about the, uh, the new Tiger Lake H series mobile chips? So Intel announced 10 chips. They're five consumer and five commercial. So they're a part of, they're not like a new generation. They're part of Intel's Tiger Lake generation, codenamed Tiger Lake, the 11th, 11th gen chips. So we had like a few of these already. And the ones that we tried, we, we really only one of them was in like a lot of laptops that we tried. And it was not like great. It was okay, but like the competition is just, I mean, there's a lot of competition from both sides. So AMD, obviously Ryzen 5000, we saw huge performance gains and efficiency gains there. And then of course, from Apple, we have the M1, which just did really, really well in the MacBook Pro and yeah. the MacBook Air. And they're putting it in everything now. You can get it in an iPad, you can get it in a toaster. It's great. Intel, I mean, Intel's really playing catch up and we've been really waiting on these chips because these are the ones that we expect to be competitive with Ryzen 5000 because there are three eight core chips and two six core chips. So these are really like workstation chips. These are gaming laptop chips. We didn't really have chips from Intel that were competitive on that front before. So this is really, if Intel is gonna put out gaming laptops and put out workstations that are as good as the ones coming from AMD, these chips are going to be in them. So that's what's that's what's significant. Do you believe them? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's hard. There are two sort of elephants in the room here. In terms of, of, um, of like raw power, like the frame weights we're going to get, we do generally expect them to be competitive with Ryzen 5000, certainly more so okay. than the, the chips that we've seen from this series so far. The big elephant in the room is battery life because AMD has been really good at that. We saw in the Zephyrus G15, that was like monstrous battery life. It lasted yeah. about as long as any gaming laptop I've ever tested for battery life. AMD has just made like incredible efficiency gains over the past few generations. And as we know, Apple's M1 delivers very good battery life as well. I was listening very closely and I did not hear battery life mentioned in Intel's presentation. I did not <laughs> hear anything about it. And that is a worrying sign to me because I think if they, I assume if they had made big gains in battery life, they probably would have said something. Yeah, of course. So that's a question mark. And that's really, I think, what we're going to be watching for is, you know, did this increased power to these Tiger Lake chips come at the expense of a lot of efficiency? And if we have 
gaming laptops that are really good, but they only last like an hour and a half. That's, you know, that's not necessarily a gaming laptop is going to be as good as what we're seeing coming out of coming out of AMD. Um, the other question yeah. is Alder Lake, which is like sort of the next generation that's supposed to be coming from Intel. So Intel claims it has this 12th generation code named Alder Lake coming later this year that was announced at CES. And we really don't know how good this is going to be, but there's definitely a question of whether like buying these chips means you're buying yourself into obsolescence if we have Alder Lake mm-hmm. coming out so soon. I did, I asked Intel's general manager and, and Intel GM about that when I spoke to them last week. And they basically, I mean, they, they said, they said, buy now. <laughs> they said, you know, Alder Lake. <laughs> so that's the only information we have on that. Amazing. We've been down on Intel for like so much for so many years. It's actually hard. Like they've got the new CEO. He unveiled his new plan. They're like, they're, they're going to build chips for other companies. They're going to let other companies build their chips. They've got, they've got a whole very good strategy. It seems like for like catching up and getting out of this sort of perpetual state of feeling like they're just a little bit behind. It seems like they're still just a little bit behind. And so you know, this isn't the like, oh, they, they, they're back. And I, I'm starting to feel like we're not going to get that moment out of them. Like Apple had this huge like kaboom moment with the M1. I think AMD actually with the recent generation of Ryzen chips has like really been like, oh, wow, you guys are back. What? Like I, I wasn't paying attention, but here you are. These are great. And I just don't know if, like if and when we're going to get that kind of moment out of Intel. Yeah, I mean, it's a really big question. Like, you know, it's not all that all that many years that we've been able to say Intel's the underdog, but but Intel's the underdog right now. I mean, they really <laughs> these chips need to be good. I don't think it's impossible, but um you know, I think really efficiency is the main one of the reasons that AMD's last two generations have been so impressive is that they are like just so, so efficient in so many of these systems, yeah. um, which is really where we've seen Intel losing. Now, Intel has been very competitive on single core workloads there, but a big thing that we're gonna be watching for here is whether the multi-core workloads are really able to um, to be what we're seeing coming out of AMD because it was just getting destroyed on those last year. So did any of the, I don't know, half dozen laptops that got announced with this stuff appeal to you? Like I'm, I'm looking at a bunch and like, actually these seem like pretty good. Like maybe they actually did achieve some kind of efficiency because things seem thinner and lighter. I don't know. What, what do you think? Anything here appeal to you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm excited about is that we've seen a couple laptop gaming laptops finally, finally ditching the 16 by nine aspect ratio. Um, I'm <laughs> yes. very, very excited about that because I hate the 16 by nine aspect ratio and I've sworn it off forever. So, you know, obviously for, for a while, that's been the only thing you could get a gaming laptop with because, you know, yeah. they just don't have that many 16 by 10 panels that are that high resolution or that high um, refresh rate. Since CES, we've really started to see QHD screens become a lot more common on gaming laptops. And part of that is that this is the first year where we've really had the chips that could make, could power games at QHD resolution um, at these price points right. and these in these form factors. So we're, re- we're starting to see with this release, we have a couple 16 by 10 QHD screens. Yeah, so one of the ones I'm really excited about is the Zephyrus M16, which has a 16 by 10 QHD 165 hertz display. So that is pretty unusual to see in gaming laptops. And I think it's really cool because 
if you're looking for a gaming laptop that can also like be a productivity machine where you can multitask and do all your office work where you don't need to have two separate ones, a QHD 165 mm-hmm. hertz 16 by 10 display is like exactly what you want that can really accommodate both of those things. That sounds great, but does it have a webcam? <laughs> you know, I don't know actually. Okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good question. I, I the cool thing though is that um the M16 is it's basically a very similar chassis to um, the Zephyrus G14 and the Zephyrus G15, mm-hmm. which are really some of the the most portable and most well-made gaming laptops you can get. So it's basically they took the Zephyrus G14 and the Zephyrus G15, which are like excellent tried and true laptops, and they put an Intel chip in them and made them 16 by 10. So obviously we're gonna have to see how well they do, and the fact that it's an Intel chip instead of an AMD chip will certainly have an impact on the performance, but. Um, I really yeah. hope that this one succeeds because I think it's a really cool idea. Well, I love, I don't know. You convinced me I, uh, to, to buy into this brand and I'm like now a fanboy and I am looking at what appears to be a webcam on the top of the bezel. So there it is. <laughs> I mean, I'm just fascinated by the I don't know, design moment that Windows laptops are having because of these Intel chips. Like how many years do we spend yelling at Apple that they're making everything too thin and now the mm-hmm. entire Windows laptop ecosystem is like, what if it was extremely thin and light? And I feel like in, a, in another year, we're going to be like, yeah, make it thicker and put a bigger battery in it. Like, did you learn nothing? But it's interesting to see, like, the designs these laptops are, well, some of them are just like, they look exactly like MacBook Pro still. But across the board, there are bolder, more interesting designs in Windows laptops because the chip is allowing for better thermal designs. Yeah. I mean, if you want, if you are someone who really wants, like, a big like massive, obnoxious 17 inch gaming laptop. Like those are definitely still out there. Like your strict scars are out there. Your G76 Raiders are out there. Um, but I do think that, you know, there is a really large base of people who, you know, really want a, a computer that can double and do all the things they want it to do that can game, but also they can acceptably bring to a coffee shop or a work meeting and like, not have people staring because there are lights all over it. Um, <laughs> so I think that I really, I'm really glad that the industry is sort of moving in that direction and um, putting out more options. And I think that these these chips certainly are making that more viable every year. So this means I know it doesn't use this chip, but that means we should probably talk about this Acer thing because it's so cool. <laughs> okay, let's start with talk about the name, the Acer Concept D7 Ezel. Are you saying I don't know if it's Ezel or Ezel? It's like a bezel joke. They took the B out. It's, it, the bezel's so small, they can't even fit the word bezel into the name of the laptop. So they want the you to call it the easel, and it's probably there's a trademark. Yeah, I know. So they came up. Yeah. So I think they came it's up with It's definitely an easel. But uh, I prefer easel anyway. But anyway, so, so it's like a well, laptop, but it's got this wacky hinge, and the screen pulls towards you. Yeah. So the Concept D7 easel is like, it, it. you can open it up, and it looks like a regular laptop, but then there is a hinge in the center of the back of the lid. So you can fold the lid backwards and have it face away from the keyboard. And then there's also a hinge that allows you to pick the screen up off the deck and basically have it hover. And so you can you can bend it in like a, a million different ways. They've sort of defined six different ones. There's like laptop mode, you can use it as a tablet, you can have it like as a laptop but in reverse, you can have it as a tent, you can have it as a stand. There are a ton of different ways to use it. It's very cool just because like 
like any any purpose that you can imagine like wanting a laptop for there's like a form that works really well for it um the one i wouldn't i don't think is super useful is tablet because it's like over five pounds so i don't think i'm gonna be like oh anything you'd want to use a laptop for except for not breaking your back it can right. <laughs> as long as you're willing to keep it on on your desk but i really like i ended up really liking stand mode where you basically have it like in a tent over the keyboard because it's like having it, it, it's like having a tablet that's like pressed up on a stand, but it's like a lot more sturdy. Yeah. I, know, I just, I, I, I think it's super interesting that kind of Windows PCs are having a design moment. I know that Apple's doing all of its like M1 related rebooting. They obviously there's new iMac. There's been a lot of weird leaks about next generation uh, M1 or M series. Apple laptops, but like for the most part, Apple designs have been static for a decade. And so it's like yeah. really cool to see kind of the, the Windows side of it with a chip that enables more interesting thermal design. Uh, just like go for it. Like it, I don't think it's been this exciting for a while. Yeah. And I definitely hope I hope that they the, the, the concept D that I reviewed does not have the most recent chips, but I would love for them to refresh this with um, with the new chips that are coming out, because that is sort of the, the target audience for them. All right. Uh, Monica, by the way, I want to commend you on your story about Linux at the University of Minnesota, mostly for striking directly at Dieter's heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a gopher. What do you want? <laughs> but a great story. If you haven't read it, go read it. Monica dug into why the University of Minnesota is currently banned from contributing to the Linux kernel. It's just a wild, wild story involving maybe too much social engineering. Uh, as it yeah. happens. We call that, we were talking about Elon because of Spacelink. I just want to point out Tesla stopped taking Bitcoin for vehicle purchases, citing environmental harm, and then Bitcoin is like collapsed. I've never seen Liz Lopato more excited to cover a story than anything, so I'm anticipating that something will happen. Uh, yeah, her second most exciting thing was when he was on SNL and uh, called Dogecoin a hustle. <laughs> Dogecoin collapsed. I think, I think there might be a problem where... Um, <laughs> Uh, cryptocurrencies are too vulnerable to uh, famous people saying things about them. That's uh, true. Liz is currently, um, she's one of the pool reporters in the Apple trial. So she's very distracted because she's literally in the courtroom as one of the pool reporters. But she and I have had a lot of esoteric conversations about what makes a cryptocurrency a currency that Apple doesn't charge a tax for, but V-Bucks not. Uh, and so she's chasing that down too. Anyway. Elon stuff. It just keeps happening to us. Uh, I want to call out on Decoder. This week, we had Kate Klonick, who is just an expert in the Facebook oversight board. We talked about the Trump ban. Next week on Decoder, Decoder is going to come out late. It's going to come out on Thursday because we got a big guest with a, with a news. I can't say who, but it's it's big. And we got a surprise on Tuesday, too. So that's how Decoder. This week, Kate Klonick. Next week, big surprise. Also, as part of Infrastructure Week, uh, McKenna Kelly did a live event with Senator Ed Markey talking about broadband policy. That's up and around the site. You can subscribe or you can follow McKenna's various regulatory coverage at theverge.com slash hill report. That is very interesting. Also, of course, heating up, as you all know. You can tweet at us. I'm at Reckless Theaters at Backlon. Addy is at the Dextriarchy. And Monica is at MC Squared 96 which honestly sounds like a rap name. And I truly, <laughs> I wish you well in your burgeoning hip hop career. That's it. That's the first cast. Rock and roll. Get vaccinated.
Thank you to Kohler for supporting this episode. Who says smart things can't also be beautiful things? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet ever. Equipped with fully customizable bidet, heated seats, automatic cleaning cycles, and on-demand smart home functions thanks to its built-in Alexa. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. Customize the lights to match your interior or your mood and enjoy an immersive, intuitive experience of personalized luxury and cleanliness. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.